chapter 11, your pew Bible, page 262. And I like to read Second uh, Samuel chapter 11, starting with the first verse. Please stand with me as we read. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravished the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and lingered about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Chapter, or rather, chapter 11, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And let's drop down to... Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in, the, in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he had brought, up, brought it up and grew it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat off his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. May the Lord's words... And this reading bless our hearts today and uh, remind us of our need for the Lord's forgiveness and his strength and his wisdom. And um, as we listen to the message that God has given to uh, David to present to us, you may be seated.
those of you who are new to Christ's community, that is not a mistake. We really do want to take a moment and let God's word just speak to our hearts before we hear anybody talk. Uh, and so that's why we have that great moment of silence to just let the word wash over us. And what a heavy word that is today. I know it's heavy on my heart and I know it could be on yours as well. And um, so I want to pray for us. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider sin this morning and how it un- entangles us, how it overwhelms us as we succumb to its power and allow it to reign over us as we feel the shame of our sin always before us, knowing our transgressions, the weight of it all is heavy, certainly too heavy for any one of us to bear. So I pray for your encouragement to come this morning for the proclamation of the gospel that we might leave here laughing as those who have been redeemed set free and forgiven. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. In 1997, Steven Spielberg directed a movie called Amistad. In that movie, it portrays a captain of a ship who transports slaves from Africa to the place where the slaves are sold. And as in the middle of the journey, as as the story goes, the slaves took over the ship. There was a mutiny on board. And it was a great, very interesting movie certainly from its legal implications and even historical realities. However, in that movie, there was, a, there was a scene, and it made my blood boil. If you've seen that movie, you know what, probably what scene I'm talking about. It was the captain's decision that, that there wasn't enough food or resources for all of the slaves to make the journey and survive. And so he decided to pick randomly 20 slaves. And he tied a chain to each one of their ankles. And then he filled a bag, huge bag, as big as the pulpit I stand behind, full of rocks. Tied that to the first person's chain. And as the entire crew watched, they threw the ballast overboard. And as it sank into the depths of the ocean, so did the 20 slaves get dragged from the ship overboard, one by one. And as they were dragged into the depths of the sea, terrified, pleading for their lives, without a shred of clothing on any of those slaves, the crew simply watched. If I were to show you that on a big screen and turn the volume up and you were to hear the screams, it would make your blood boil. You and I would stand on our feet and we would look at the screen and we would say the criminals must die. Well, that's how it is for me. That's my Nathan. I'll sit and watch a movie or see some kind of injustice portrayed in some fashion. And I will cry out, the criminal must die. And then happens every time. The mirror of Nathan turns on me, and I hear these words. Don't be fooled. You're the man. You're the criminal. What happens in that moment, right there, when the mirror turns on you and you see yourself, makes all the difference. What happens in that moment? A lot of us conceal, hide. We compare ourselves to others. We say, I was just following orders. Or we're very creative and imaginative in the ways that we explain away the sins of our soul. But the truth is, we are the man. 
And there's no escaping it. We try. But there's no escaping it. And what happens with David? What, what happens when Nathan turns the mirror and David sees his sin that he has so, so hard tried to forget? What happens? He writes Psalm 51. You can turn there. We'll be there from time to time. These words are, are well known, but they're very helpful to us to understand how David responds to this great mirror. It's Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O Lord. According to your, un, your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Listen to these words in verse 3. I know my transgressions. In other words, I looked in the mirror and I saw it. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. And what does he say in 10? Create in me a pure heart, O God, a steadfast spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Those are the words of David in Psalm 51. That's what he does. And that's encouraging to us, is it not? When that mirror turns on you, and do you know what happens in David's life? From that moment on, he does suffer earthly consequences. He does have consequences to pay. The Lord does discipline David. But he knows what Nathan said right after he said, you're the man. Just moments after he said, your sin has been taken away from you. You will not die. And in that moment of forgiveness and grace, it's just the most beautiful moment in life. We try as humans, right? We try to write it down in words. We say amazing love. We say scandalous grace. We say, how great thou art, a mighty fortress. We try in words, in songs, to describe the feeling of the weight of sin weighing heavily, pressing us down. And then grace comes. We try to write it, but it's, it's futile because it's so amazing. It's so great that we can't imagine how great it is. And we spend the rest of our lives looking back at God's grace as it propels us forward. Well, we're going to come back to the greatness of forgiveness and grace, but first we need to deal with this mirror. And it's exceptionally helpful. I'm so thankful that David, he took ownership of what he did, and he looked at it for what it was. And we can learn great things from David this morning about sin. I mentioned it last week that sin is not such as much a, a deed or action or list of behaviors that you do, but it's a power. Remember that from last week. Well, that's what David learned. So we're going to look at what David learns about sin, and then we're going to look at what David learns about his Savior. So first, his sin. <clears throat> David, in fact, does see his sin as a list of deeds. That's true. We do see evidence of that. In Psalm 51, 9, he says, hide your face from my sins. Right? Sins, plural, lots of them. And so he does see that. But the problem is you can't read in the same psalm. You can't read verse 5, 10, and 12 and still have the same definition of sin as merely a list of behavior or bad things you've done. So look at 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What did David do in the womb? What was his bad behavior in the womb? Maybe uh, someone who is pregnant can say there's some pain involved in kicking and all types of things. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't call that sin. So verse 10, created me a pure heart. Why? 
His heart is impure. A willing spirit in verse 12. Why? Because his spirit isn't willing. He doesn't want to obey God. He craves sin. He craves something other than God, you see. So sin is not just a list of deeds. Sin is a power. And what happens when you make that mind shift? Now, I I know it sounds a little trivial to say, but I'm drilling this home because if you meditate on this as a Christian, if you meditate on this and you change your, your thinking about sin to include the reality that it's a power your whole life changes. Your whole perspective changes. You, you begin to see it in Scripture as a theme time and time again. Let me give you some implications. If you change like this and you, you think of sin as a power, let me give you some, some things that will happen. First, if you think sin is a deed, that's just the tip of the iceberg. What's seen above the waterline? It's just what you and I see. And if it's just what you and I see, we know that it's shallow. We know that it's only what we see. But but sin as a power goes beneath the surface. It goes to the source, to the cause, to the motivation. And what we see underneath the water, as you know, that famous poster, there's a huge chunk of ice underneath the water. Also, if sin is merely an act or a deed, what is your goal as a Christian? Your goal is to be forgiven. Right? Wipe the slate clean. Another way of saying it is have a second chance. So all of my sins are forgiven over here. They're gone. I turn this way and I'm walking forward in life and I'm trying to avoid bad behaviors that got me in trouble in the first place. This is how we raise our kids. Behavior modification, right? Don't do that again. Slap the hand. Sit in timeout. Get a spanking. Okay, I won't do those things again. And you modify your behavior. But if sin is a power, as David has discovered in his sin with Bathsheba, if sin is a power, then what is the goal? Not just forgiveness, which is great, but liberation. Freedom. No longer is sin powering over me, but now I'm free or I'm becoming free more and more every day. I don't want to sin anymore. The core of my heart is transformed. And that's your life. In Romans 5 through 8, four chapters, you'll read the word sin 42 times. And in that, those chapters, Paul writes sin as if it were a verb twice. It's a noun 40 times. And if you read through those chapters with this in your mind, your mind will explode. It's, it's amazing. Listen to Romans 5.21. Just as sin reigned in death, Okay, listen to those words. Sin reigned in death. Now, what kind of noun or subject reigns? What goes with that verb? You see? A king, a powerful force reigning over you, controlling you, moving you, motivating you. If you read Romans 7, you sense this great power in, in, in Paul's heart, motivating him to do that which he doesn't want to do. So this great tug of war is happening in the human heart, and it's a power, not just a deed. It's kind of like I was thinking about what kind of a power this might be, maybe a king, sure. But here's another way to think about it. Sin is is kind of like an addiction, if you think about it. An addiction starts small, right? First, it's not really bad. It's just a sampling. It's pleasurable. There's, there's this moment where you're like, this is awesome. This is great. And then steadily and surely and secretly, even, even outside of your notice, 
sin grows and grows and grows. And before you know it, you're entangled. So sin is kind of like an addiction. Let's think of it that way. It's, it's a helpful way to think about it. Okay, so sin is an addiction. Let's, let's look at what David learns when he looks in the mirror of Nathan and he looks at his sin. It's a power. First, sin starts small. You read in the first verse of chapter 11, it's in the spring. When all the kings go off to war, yet David remained home. Do you see, is that, is that a bad deed? If you think of sin as a deed, you're fine. No problem. Everything's good. I haven't done anything wrong. Now, some argue that David was lazy or maybe that's a sin, but it's hard. That's debatable. And a lot of times when we look at the first step of addiction, we always kind of say, that's not that big of a deal. Why are you jumping down my throat? Right? That's what my kids always say when they do the little sin. And I know that it leads to bigger sins. And I mean, everything my kids do wrong leads like a slippery slope straight into the destruction of hell. So, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit, you know, paranoid and freaking out. So and they always say, Dad, it's not a big deal. What's the deal? What? Come on. It's not that big of a deal. But I see a little bit more clearly how sin can grow. But it always starts small. And if you think of sin as a deed, you won't notice it. You'll stay home like David in the spring when all the kings go to war. And then notice what else he does. It kind of grows, doesn't it? It grows a little bit. David steps out onto his, uh, his roof and he just looks at his kingdom. Again, nothing wrong there. He hasn't done anything wrong. And then he sees a woman who's bathing. Not his fault, right? He just happens to, uh, not his fault. Then he inquires about her. Hmm. Who is that? Okay. Asking a question, who is that, is not a sin. So his mind is like rational. Okay, I'm not, I'm not sinning yet. Right? You see, that's how sin goes. And this is the second reality of sin. It starts small, but it always grows. Think about what it would take for you to murder somebody. Okay, so you're going to kill someone in real life. Wet work. Here we go. Right? You're going to do it. And you go out and you get the weapon of choice and you're heading towards the object, the, the person you're going to kill, and you're just about to do it. How do you feel in that moment? Extremely scared, probably nervous, probably feeling like I don't want to do this awful thing that's going to end bloody and gross. Probably thinking about, you know, spending the rest of your life in prison or losing your family or whatever you think about. There's a lot that keeps you from murdering somebody. But how does sin work? Sin starts small so you don't detect it and then takes baby steps all the way to the end. Because that's what David ended up being, a murderer. And he didn't start being a murderer. He started small and it grew and it grew. And half the sins of David, by the way, are hiding his original sin. He invited Uriah. Hey, go home. Please go home and see your wife so it doesn't look like I'm the father. And everyone's confused and it hides my sin. Of course, Uriah refuses. The next step, you know what he does? He tries to get Uriah drunk. The man after God's own heart, King David, the great hero, tries to get Uriah drunk and succeeds. And then sends him home. Please go home in your drunken stupor and make bad decisions. And maybe that will result in hiding my sin. And then the ultimate hiding of his sin, he just kills Uriah. Takes his wife. Ah, it's my child. See? She's my wife now. Do you see this in your life? Do you see the progression of sin in your life? Where is it for you? What, what are you doing that, quote, if it's just a deed, quote, unquote, it's just, it's not wrong. 
but does it lead somewhere? That's the better question. If sin is a power, where is sin taking me? How much is sin overtaking me, overwhelming me? What am I surrendering to sin, to this life away from God? That's a better question to ask. Another thing we learn, sin leads to more suffering than we could ever imagine. Here's another way of saying that. It never works. It never works. You steal a paperclip from work, the next day, month, you'll steal a stapler, right? It grows. You end up stealing a chair because you work from home once a week. Come on, you steal a chair. Then you move on, and before you know it, you're embezzling millions of dollars. I mean, it just it grows like that, and it, it never it never works. It never works. It never succeeds. It always leads you further than you think because somewhere along the line, you're going to get caught. And in order for you not to get caught, you have to sin more, right? You have to do more sins. And so it's sin moving you down this progression. It never, ever works. And that is so helpful to say to yourself day one. When all the kings are going off and it's spring and you're on your roof, you should think to yourself, okay, this isn't going to work. This is going to end badly. I'm taking myself out of this situation right now. And maybe this morning you need to think of that area. That's not wrong, sure, but it's dangerous. And it's leading somewhere you don't want to go. Final thing we learn from David is that sin is deeply deceiving. Same thing in addiction, isn't it? Same thing. Just keeps growing and growing. Denial. That is a powerful form of self-deception. Think about David as he's listening to Nathan. And Nathan is describing a ewe lamb and a flock of sheep with a rich guy. You know, poor, rich. You know, he's describing this story. And David gets irate. David gets angry at this seemingly small injustice. Sure, a ewe was stolen, a little lamb. Okay. And David gets so angry. What is he not angry at? his own sin you see he's forgotten it we are experts by the way you don't have to be trained in this (laughs) you're automatically said david says i was sinful from birth in the womb i was conceived i have this thing this power this force in me that causes me to be an expert in explaining away my sin or better forgetting altogether my sin you ever hold a grudge against yourself You hold grudges and remember others' sins. Do you ever do that about yourself? No. Here's what you do. Naturally, the default mode for you is just to cover and to forget. David walked away. Look at the end of 2 Samuel 11. This is a great verse. The very last verse of 2 Samuel 11 is a verse of clarity for David. And it reads, let me find it here. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore a son. Case closed. David's going like this. I've done it. I've hidden everything. Only a few people know, and if they, they talk, I'll kill them. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got this under control. And he walks away forgetting his sin. The last sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God doesn't forget. And God is going to send a movie a song, a sermon, a person 
anything to get you to see the truth of Nathan as he comes with the truth of your sin. And as that mirror turns, you will wake up from your own deception. So think about David sending for Uriah. Sorry, think about David before Uriah sending for Bathsheba. Think think about him in that moment. He didn't feel like an adulterer. He felt like a lover. Think about David sending for Uriah. He didn't feel like a murderer. He felt like a king. So the deception of David is broken apart with Nathan. That's what we need. We need we need deception breakers in our life like David had. So once David sees himself, he understands the, the power of sin that's overwhelmed his life, not just a list of things. What does David do? How does David respond? And I want to show you the greatness of, of, of grace and forgiveness. Okay, so he is forgiven and he's liberated. Nathan says, Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And then David responds with this great response at the end of his life, towards, you know, in the middle of his life. He loves God more than anything. And you'll read it in Psalm 119, Psalm 51, and a number of other psalms, some of which we sang this morning. Of David's just, he's in love with God. He just loves God. He wants God. He craves God. He desires him. He, he just, he's pursuing God. Well, what, what made that difference? The difference is... That as sin comes into your life slowly, with Nathan's proclamation of grace, grace enters like a flood. It's overwhelming to sense every sin is as far as the east is from the west, David writes. Think about that. Your sin is so far away, it's just, it's not even, it's inconceivable how far your sin is away from you. You're whiter than snow, he says. As, as sin creeps in slowly, makes you unaware, grace floods. You, it's like you hold a cup up and you say, God, fill my cup with just a little grace. And the waterfall of Yosemite comes flying down and, and the cup is just knocked out of your hand. The overwhelming flood of God's grace. Do you, do you know why this is important for us to understand? Is because we need to see grace differently too. A lot of us see grace as an act in the past. Jesus died and rose again, and I'm forgiven. But grace is so much more than a deed, like sin is so much more than a deed. Grace is also power. And in Romans 5.21, Paul says, Just as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign. Right? Grace comes in like a power into your life. And I'm not saying the struggle is over. But you now have a resource you never had access to before. You can now walk forward with a new power, a new motivation. And that is, it's, it's mind-bending how your life is going to change. Little by little, Power comes in. So David, when Bathsheba's son dies, we're in Second Samuel 12, and he learns that the baby has died, and he's, he's realizing that there are earthly consequences that he's going to have to suffer through because of his sin. But the next moment he gets up, where does he go? A lot of you know the story, right? He washes up, cleans up, 
dresses, and he walks into the temple, and he worships God. He worships God. He, he's overwhelmed by the grace that God has extended him. And he spends the rest of his life wanting God, craving God. Give me, listen to the words from 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29. This is the the end of his life as he's writing notes to Israel and to Solomon for the building of God's temple. And, and, And he prays this prayer to God. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. But who am I and who are my people that we should be given, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires, keep these thoughts in the hearts of your people forever. Keep their hearts loyal to you and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands. See, David gets sin is a power, but grace is a power. We need that power to have a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. That's what we're praying for, isn't it? Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 7, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches, the, the wealth of God's grace that he lavished on us. Do you know what the word lavish means it means you need a honda accord to get you from point a to point b but god gives you a rolls royce with the handmade leather seats of nine hides with the wood veneer from one tree with the four hundred twenty thousand dollar stereo speaker i mean the rolls royce he, he lavishes on you the cup is just running over says scripture now i want you to this is the last point i'm going to make think about this why why? You need $100, you get $20 billion. Why? Why do you get more than you need? Because there's an intention to the grace that comes in your life. There's an intention that it wouldn't just sit with you. And God doesn't waste anything. God doesn't waste an ounce, a second, a moment. He doesn't waste anything. The grace that comes into your life when that mirror comes and you hear that grace that just comes into your life, you're to extend that out to others. And I'll prove it to you by David writing in first, or Psalm 51, verse 13. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Hear that? I'll teach them your ways so that they'll stop doing bad things. No. I'll teach them your ways so they turn back to you. See that? He's, in, he's now involved in extending this grace to others. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. So our hearts will be changed and we will tell others. The point of having more than enough is to tell others, to give it away. Now, here we have the elements. We're going to take communion in a moment. Well, how do we connect Jesus Christ to this story? You know, when the, the, way, the mirror of Nathan came on Nathan, came on David, 
and David saw himself. He heard the words, you're the man, and David stood guilty. In the presence of, of God, he stood, he stood vulnerable, exposed, and guilty. But there's another man. Let me read about him in John 19. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So there in John 19 stands another man, and, the, and he's the king of the Jews, just like David was the king. And they slapped him in the face, and once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. As David stood guilty, Jesus stands innocent. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Kill him. Crucify him. You see, there is another man. As David stood guilty, yet forgiven and liberated, Jesus stood innocent, yet condemned. And what did Jesus say? He said, here, here is my body, and my body is, is broken for you. And Jesus pointed to the cup, and he took it, and he said, here is my blood. And it's spilled. It's spilled for you. Eat this bread. Drink this wine in remembrance of me. This is true power, the gracious power. Jason's going to play piano as we, as we come and take the elements. My encouragement to you is if you have seen that mirror and you have asked for grace, then come to the table of grace and eat these elements. But if you haven't made it there yet, this is your moment to sit and reflect and to consider the words that have been spoken to you this morning.